Welcome to the Women Governance Gurus podcast, where we listen to the journeys of women working in the field of corporate governance, their passions, struggles, and commitment to improving how companies and boards function. My name is Liz Dunchy, and my co-host is Courtney Camlet. Hi, everyone. Courtney and I are both passionate about governance, and we want to spotlight some of the amazing women who share that passion. Hear what has surprised them over their careers and various perspectives from different paths and industries. For this episode, we're very excited to be talking with Jackie Cook, who's the Director of Sustainable Stewardship Research at Morningstar. Welcome, Jackie. Hi, Liz. Hi, Courtney. Um, It's great to be on this podcast. Um, I think uh, the concept of this channel is great, and um, and I love the name. So, uh, if you don't mind, (laughs) I'm sitting. I'm sitting cross-legged channeling my inner guru right now. (laughs) I love it. That's amazing. And we're so glad to have you. Now, Jackie, currently you're the director of sustainable stewardship research at Morningstar, and you've had a fascinating journey to get there. Your LinkedIn profile notes that you grew up under the African sky and graduated from Oxford as a Rhodes Scholar. Years ago, you built a database to analyze investor voting data, and you eventually sold it to Morningstar. How did you first become interested in analyzing fund votes on ESG topics? And what made you realize that that information would be in such high demand? Um, uh, So, great question. I didn't realize this information would be in such high demand. Um, uh, I I guess when I started the business, I was thinking about a very specific use case. I was thinking about shareholder proponents who file shareholder resolutions um, on environmental and social issues. And um, and so I was thinking about, you know, what sort of data could be brought to bear to help them with their campaigns, to position their campaigns and to track their campaigns over time um, and to, to position their communications. Um, and so at the time I was working with the corporate library and I was one of the early uh, – I've joined the corporate library really early on and I'm not sure if um, – if you're familiar with it, but it was the precursor to Governance Metrics International, which was eventually bought by MSCI. So it's their kind of ESG researching um, unit within MSCI. But I started out, um, they, that, uh, that company was founded by Bob Monks and Mel Minow. Um, hmm. So themselves, the, the corporate governance gurus uh, of the corporate governance handbook. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so it was an excellent place to cut my teeth on corporate governance. Um, and I'd actually started in academia just uh, um, when I left university or when I left um, Oxford, I went and joined Cambridge um, in a postgraduate research role there. Um, looking at corporate form and mutuality or the mutual corporate form, which is um, an alternative to the um, profit, profit maximizing or shareholder primacy model. So anyway, that's kind of the lead up to starting the business. And um, and the business went, you know, it was focused on um, investor advocacy for a long while. And then the mainstream interest um, started to come in about 2012, and um, and I think that's when I got a sense of you know this is this is going to be a much bigger um, thing, um, but you know I have always believed in the power of this um, of shining a light on investor stewardship as a, as a strategy for getting investors behind you know these important issues that that um, impact companies but they impact um, the market 
as a whole, you know. So you need you need to solve the collective action problem. You know, how to get investors focused on these issues. You know, when the typical model of um, investor stewardship is to be just you know focusing company by company within your portfolio. And I think the the key there is transparency. You know, what are investors doing across their portfolios? And um, you know, as we get bigger and bigger um, asset managers controlling larger and larger stakes of the of the um, securities market, you know, what can we do to get these asset managers acting as stewards of capital markets? So, shining, um, shining a light on the investor stewardship was so entrepreneurial and such a great idea. Um, and, you know, it wasn't my idea. <laughs> so I can't take credit for it. I was working with folks like Ceres and, um, and as you saw from San Francisco, um, Neighbor groups like AFL-CIO, the Umbrella Neighbor Group, um, they were focused on compensation, executive compensation issues, um, the Center for Political Accountability. Um, so I was working with these investor advocacy groups who already understood the power of investor stewardship. I mean, they, some of them have pioneered in, <laughs> the, you know, using the shareholder, using the proxy process to affect change. You know, if you think of um, uh, the ICCR, um, folks who belong to the investors, uh, ICCR, Investor Center for Corporate Responsibility, um, you know, they've been using the shareholder resolution filing process to um, address apartheid, uh, uh, to advocate for divestment from South Africa during the apartheid era. So the power of, the power of investor stewardship, I think, had already been realized by a few, um, but it really took the corporate scandals, um, you know, the early accounting scandals, um, to to uh, awaken a more general awareness of the dangers of these large investors not being active stewards. Um, you know, because the problems that were emerging emerged in plain sight. And so the big question after the, you know, corporate scandals was, what were these large investors doing? <laughs> Um, they certainly were voting against these boards of directors who were just who were sitting around letting these accounting practices um, happen. So that's when you know the disclosure regime that led to my business was um, put in place. Um, you know now asset managers have to file their voting records on behalf of all of the funds that they offer, and these voting records add that level of transparency that um, allows us to hold large um, investors to account for their um, for their proxy voting. And then, of course, from there, you need to be asking what are they doing in their engagements, et cetera. Yeah, and of course, now there's a push to be able to get that information out there in more real time. Exactly, exactly, yes. So, so you know, annual disclosure of this information um, is still not enough, you know, because uh, there's a, a three-month lag between the end of the proxy season and when the disclosures have to be um, filed and so technically you can have a, a 14 month old AGM that you don't know how the large um, investors have voted on. So yes, you know I think um, uh, uh, more regular disclosure is definitely um, the next step in making the data more transparent. Yeah. Well, you've been very forward thinking throughout your career. Obviously, uh, what does your current role entail? Um, well, my current role at Morningstar, which of course began when Morningstar acquired Sunbirds, which is the company that I started back in 2007. Um, and so 
Um, this role, has, and that was September 2018. So my role has evolved over the last two years and about four months now, and um, and I love my role. Uh, I couldn't have imagined a better benefit <laughs> for my variety of interests, you know, whether it's, you know, on the technical side, on the data side, on the subject matter side, working with people, working with innovative teams. So um, all of that said, my role's evolved, and initially it was focused on um, integrating the um, business that, that Morningstar had bought. So um, working with the data teams to, you know, make, make a new space for this <laughs> stewardship mm-hmm. data that was brand new to Morningstar. So, you know, we had to um, work closely with the data teams and, um, and work closely with the tech teams to make sure that all the IP was transferred over as well because, you know, the, the business that I built was very much based on, uh, on IP. It was, you know, there was no way that I was going to be curating millions of records every proxy season and indexing everything by hand. So working with the tech team to make sure that all the algorithms and everything were translated into Morningstar system. Um, and then a really important part, and a part of my role that I've, I've loved over the last few years has been evangelizing investor stewardship throughout Morningstar. So, um, you know, a lot of it has been organic. Folks reaching out from quants or equity research or manager research or from indexes saying, you know, hey, what can we do with um, proxy voting research? You know, what can we do with these shareholder resolutions that have all this amazing ESG content? You know, so uh, folks have been reaching out and I've, and I've made a real conscious effort to respond to every single person who reaches out. Um, and to work a lot with editorial as well to talk about and to develop some new voices within Morningstar to talk about investor stewardship and investor stewardship particularly with respect to the environmental and social issues that, um, you know, that, that seem to be so um, tied to investor stewardship. Um, and now, so, and now I, I get to a point where I think <laughs> within Morningstar, there are now a lot of people who are fairly experts on investor stewardship. And, um, and so I'm focusing on my research um, within manager research and um, heading up. Um, so Morningstar has just released a new um, ESG commitment level rating of asset managers and, and investment strategies. And so I'm heading up the investment stewardship pillar of that, um, of that rating. Well, that's great. It sounds like you do a lot of what Liz and I both like, which is connecting in conversations. Oh, yes. I love connecting conversations, yeah. <laughs> I love talking to – I love responding to media requests, you know, when, um, and I, I do a lot of this uh, because it is a very newsworthy kind of subject matter. So um, I love talking to reporters because reporters are actually, um, I find, the best source of ideas for new research, Um you know, often there'll be a question, and the, the question comes out of left field. You know, when you when you're focused on the subject matter, so it's really often um, you need a bit of creativity, a bit of um, you know, out of the box thinking, and and reporters always bring new ideas. So as you continue on with Morningstar and talking with people, do you think that we're approaching a tipping point for ENS disclosure and performance to become as important as financial information? Yes, so um, this tipping point, so if it's, you know, by way of, by thinking about a tipping point, you know, past the point of no return, I think we've, 
I think we've hit that tipping point. So, you know, I think there's no question about we're going to see ENS disclosures in financial reports. Um, you know, and this, this process is already well underway outside of, um, outside of the U.S. You know, we've just been a little delayed in getting there. Mm-hmm. Um, the SEC hasn't been particularly proactive in mandating um, ESG disclosures. And, you know, I think now we're at a tipping point in politics as well where, you know, we'll start to see a, a many more developments that feed into each other. And one key development will be when the SEC mandates ESG disclosures. Um, and, you know, there's every indication that this is going to happen. It may, you know, it may be in the form of individual areas, so, you know, like um, greenhouse gas emission disclosures and financial reports and diversity disclosures. But we're, um, we're certainly, you know, not far off. And, um, and internationally, you can see tipping points like the IFRS, um, you know, announcing um, late last year that they're consulting on, um, you know, sustainable standards board that will um, oversee the creation of a kind of a global sustainability um, disclosure or accounting framework. So, um, you know, these these tipping points, I mean, you can even, you can step back and, you know, look at the PRI and the way the PRI membership has grown over the years. And I think I would point to... um, the Climate Action 100 Plus Coalition, which, you know, now has reached 52 trillion in membership, you know, and that, that's a membership of investors who are committed to engaging on climate risk. So, um, the, the, and 2020 was something of a tipping point in, in raising general level of investor awareness of the materiality of, um, the social, um, uh, part of the EMS, you know, the, um, human capital and um, and the way uh, workplace conditions and diversity and and um, systemic racial discrimination and you know how far that sets back an economy over years. So I think these the, there are various tipping points to um, to kind of use as milestones along the way. But I think we passed the point of no return. We are going to see environmental and social disclosures in in mainstream financial reports in the near future. Yeah, and I guess the question becomes with that is um, what that disclosure will look like and whether there will be a standardized reporting framework of some sort or whether it will be principles-based. And um, based on your background, what advice do you have to corporate disclosure professionals who want to provide useful information to investors and other stakeholders? I mean, should we be... Um, focusing on any particular set of standards or should we be doing anything differently to cater to human readers versus quote unquote machine reading that's becoming more prevalent? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, <clears throat> definitely working with recognized frameworks makes a whole lot of things. I mean, it makes for, for disclosure, for, for folks, you know, um, putting together the disclosures, it makes your life a lot easier, you know, um, referencing say the SASB materiality framework. Um, you know, talking, and that would guide you through some some uh, stages in in the disclosure process. Talking to stakeholders, finding out what's meaningful to stakeholders, identifying your stakeholders. Um, so, you know, ahead of disclosure, there's a lot of work to be done in really just um, understanding, even um, you know, coming up with a belief statement about how the company's uh, the company's role within uh, you know society. So that that kind of um, 
big picture thinking, I think, is essential prior to getting to putting pen to paper. And then, you know, on the question of machine readability, I think definitely um, as um, uh, I think when ESG disclosures are mandated, we are going to have um, data points that are mandated as well. And that's, that's really important. You know, we need narrative and we need data points. Um, so narrative is, is invaluable for context. Um, but when it comes down to it, we actually need to know, you know, what is the gender makeup of your workforce? <laughs> Um, what is your carbon footprint and even maybe some forward-looking carbon metrics. Um, uh, what, you know, so these, these kind of metrics are very important. So the extent to which, and of course now I think even XBRL is working on, um, on standardizing some of the ESG metrics yeah. that would be relevant to mandatory um, ESG uh, disclosures. So, so there's no question about where the disclosures, I think, are going to be machine-readable, and that's going to be required. Um, and that's very important for, um, you know, for your readers, for, for your human readers. So machine-readability is important for humans because the more machine-readable your reports are, the, you know, the, the better access humans have to them. What you're saying is that the disclosures would also need to be in the filed SEC reports too, right? Versus in yes. the sustainability report. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So um, sustainability reports are an excellent um, process to go through. Compiling a sustainability report, I think, for for a company is an excellent process to go through. I mean, uh, it's probably even more valuable to the company than to. <laughs> I mean, it's hard to say, but you know, the whole process of of identifying stakeholders and identifying metrics and putting in place processes to um, gather data for those metrics uh, and then tracking those metrics over time. I mean, I think that's just invaluable. So shining a light on anything is as much about gathering information as it is about the process of, um, of developing that inf- or putting that information together. Um, but yes, I, I do believe that um, for the for ENS disclosures to be meaningful, they have to find their way into financial reports. Hmm. And I think it used to be sort of a nice to have, and now it's getting to a point where, you know, it's almost ingrained in companies' culture, like purpose and values is the overall ESG program. Yes, exactly. Yeah, I mean the idea of <laughs> the idea of corporate purpose. You know, it. Um, I think if um, so, well, corp, corp, or, or, um, a purpose within society. So thinking about corporate purpose as a purpose within society, I think is, is such a, um, uh, a measure of how far we've come in thinking about the uh, materiality of environmental and social issues over the years. You know, um, when I first started out in corporate governance, really the, the, the mainstream thinking was shareholder primacy. You know, so... Firstly and foremostly, we, we make money for our shareholders, and we make money for our shareholders within, the, you know, the bounds of the law, and you know, so it's all about compliance of the law. But, but you know, now it's um, now it's really going above and beyond what the law requires in order to make sure that make uh, make the case that your company actually adds value to society, not just to your shareholders. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just taped a podcast last week with the Assistant Corporate Secretary at Viva Systems about that company's conversion to uh, public benefit corporation status, um, kind of bringing it back to your work at Cambridge there. But 
she was of the opinion that that could become a trend because there have been people reaching out to her for more information since they announced that move. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, so, and, and you know, I'm based in Canada, and so the, the idea of a public benefit corporation, I think, is more of a, because um, I think under, Canada, under Canadian law, um, you can be more of a public benefit corporation without having to change your incorporation, whereas I think under, um, in, in the U.S. you would actually have to, in most states, change your incorporation in order to be a public benefit corporation or in order to put stakeholder interests um, on the same level as shareholder interests. But, um, yes, that's a, that, that is an interesting movement, and it's encouraging to hear that she's been um, receiving inbound calls about that. Mm-hmm. So what do you think women in the corporate governance field can add to the current conversation on the societal role of companies? This is our seminal question that we ask all of our interviewees. And it's a great question. <laughs> um, you know, because still, and, and, and this question really is so timely for me because I'm just putting the finishing touches to a research piece that looks at um, gender pay and the gender pay representation at the very top of corporate America. And it's abysmal, the level of um, female representation in the C-suite and really at the top of the C-suite when you're talking about the named executive officers. Um, so there's a lot of work to be done. And, you know, when you look, when you look up through the ranks of um, companies, you still see that the higher, higher and higher up you go, the fewer and fewer women there are. And there's still a gender pay gap. Um, you know, so when you reach the top of the company, there is um, quite a significant gap. And I'm seeing 85 cents, women are earning 85 cents for every dollar that men earn when you look at the named executive offices at the top of the company. Um, so we, we have, um, and that's 2019. I, I actually think that might change in 2000, uh, 2019 data reported in 2020. Um, but you know, so there's a role. I mean, throughout the organization, women who attain higher levels um, or higher ranks, you know, have have a, almost a responsibility to make a space for um, for others. And that's and this is thinking about the value of diversity to the company itself, but also um, the op- bringing opportunities to women and to people of color. You know, as you move up through the ranks within companies, so. Women definitely have a role within companies, and, and I think that creates a societal role as well. So, um, so you know, women uh, can start conversations like you're doing. <laughs> Thank um, you. you know, you can start conversations within your company, and you can start conversations amongst your professional peers. And I'll, I'll give you, I mean, here in Vancouver, um, a colleague and I have started a, a um, just an informal a group of colleagues who meet regularly to discuss proxy voting and investor stewardship. And if I look at this group, we're predominantly female. Um, it may be um, that women are particularly drawn to, um, you know, to, to ESG-type um, um, roles because of the societal value, I think, that we see in these roles. But um, having these conversations and and making our voices heard and creating spaces for others, I think, is um, is some of the important work that we can do. Absolutely, and and there's still so much room in this space. It's, it's there's nothing that's black and white, so it's kind of exciting because you get to be a pioneer in some respects. Yes, exactly. There's still a lot of 
um, space to take initiative and to create new initiatives. So it is an exciting space, and um, and there's a lot of um, a lot of uh, new people coming into the um, field with a lot of new ideas. You know, so um, I think that's exciting. We're going to see a lot of change. Well, it's been great talking with you, Jackie. Thank you so much. Yes, thank you, Jackie. Thank you for being here. My pleasure. I thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. So did we. And thanks for joining us on this episode of Women Governance Gurus. Please subscribe on whatever platform you use for podcasts, and we would love if you would rate us while you're there.